What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes. Guess what? What? New year, new ad. Oh, I like it. I thought you were going to say new year, new you. Nah, I'm still the same shitty version of me. <laughs> you know who's not a shitty version of themselves anymore? Go ahead and tell me. The boof head. The fading boof head? Einz a wiener. Oh, my God. Einswick dog quip. Yes. Jason's only half the man he was uh, a year ago. I know he's on an amazing journey. But Incredible. he still sells- Amazing equipment. The best equipment you can get in Australia. Yes, he does. If you want dog training equipment- He's the only man to go to. Yep. It turns out it's not just equipment either. He did those cages for my car. I know. they're fucking rad. They are really good. Yeah. He's like, got a new range of stuff. There's a new line of gear. I think it's called Klim or something like that. Klein. Klein, is it? Yeah, I think Klein. Klein. That's okay. how I read it. Yeah, Klim Klein. Yeah, they make mad stuff. Yeah, really good stuff. Yeah. So I've got to do a little review for him on that, but go and check out his website because he has got one. Yes. Yeah. Einz a wiener, dog quip. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help but say that. Einzweck. E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K. Yep. Is it? Is that correct? Yeah. Einzweck? Yeah. Einzweck dog quip. Check it out. If you're in Australia, that's the only place you should be getting your dog gear from. Yep. None of those other places. That's right. Just go straight to the buffet. Yeah. Just say, hey, buffet, give us a deal. Now, I know you North Americans mm. are probably just like, God damn. What I about us? I could buy some of that what stuff. What about me? Yeah. So I think if you want treadmills, you can actually still get them through Jason because mm-hmm. he sort of just is the middle guy anyway. And he knows he that. knows who's making the good meals yeah, he and knows who's meals. not. Yep. Mm. But if you want other dog training equipment. Mach le point. Mach le point. Yes. Yep. It's French for Mark. All around good guy, Canadian. Amazing guy. Mach very, very good man. Yep. yep. And he's got everything. He's like Canine Dynamics has bite training equipment, leashes, tugs, all the normal stuff you'd expect to see. They on are the, dynamic. Yeah. Mm. His website is much better than Jason. <laughs> How dare you, sir? <laughs> <laughs> it's a fact, too. <laughs> I actually was a client of Canon Dynamics before mm-hmm. we knew MacLapoint. Yes. And the, the purchase process was seamless. Yeah. The website's amazing. It's very good. It's very detailed and it's laid out well. And he yeah. covers all of North America, yeah. which Canada is included in that as well. Well, yeah. he's in Canada. Yeah. Ma- Canada Dynamics is Canadian. Yes, I know. Yeah. Yeah. He's, so, yeah. he's in Ottawa, isn't he? Uh, something like that. Yeah. No. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He's in North America. Love if you want dog training And he supports our show. Thank get you. Get it from there. Thank you, Mark Point. We have one other sponsor. Yes. Melanie Benware. Yep. Kindred Canine. Kindred Canine. Yep. From the train town itself, Ashland, Virginia. Yep. So if you need in-home behavior modification. Yep. She'll come around and look after your We did a whole episode on- We did. The way she does it. She yeah. very kindly gave away her whole business model to she everybody. Yeah. At so the end of 2020. The homeschool program. If you know someone that needs the homeschool program, yep. get them on to Melody Benware, Kindred yes. Canine. Yep. Or, you know what? what? People should probably, if they want to learn more about homeschool program beyond what she gave away for free on the show. Great idea. They should get in contact with her and yep. she should charge them to teach them about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mel, we just opened up a whole new revenue stream for you. Absolutely. You're welcome.
Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Here we are once again. Odd morning we've had. Mm, well, we were supposed to have a live guest, or well, not a live guest, but a recorded guest on the show, but we got about 20 minutes, 15, yeah, about 20 minutes into it and uh, their internet crashed out. So yeah. There's a big, exciting guest, you guys. We won't say because we don't- We don't uh, want to ruin the suspense. Yeah. Well, we want to create- Create sorry, suspense. Create suspense, yeah. <laughs> so we'll have to try that again. It looks like we may be able to do it next week. Yes. So it's just us. Yeah. We didn't have a topic because we had that guest planned. Well, we've always got topics in our head. Mm. So we've sort of sat down for 15 minutes and sort of molded out about where we're going with this. Mm -hmm. And we thought today that considering there's been a lot of noise around it, we'd start talking a little bit about puppies. Yeah. So we've talked about puppies before, right? Yeah, we've done a few shows on puppies and we've played with the idea of them. But now you, me and Jazz are all raising sibling puppies. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and a few others in the club. So I think we've got seven puppies in the club currently. Well, Ashley, the breeder, she's got her puppy. Yep. Jordan, who trains with us, he's yep. got his puppy. Yep. There's yours and Jazz's or yours and Jazz's combined. Yep. And my one that I'm raising for Dave. Yep. Which is Macho. Yep. And Courtney and Red. And, and Courtney and Red. Yes. Yeah. So seven. Yeah. Seven puppies all from the same litter. Mm. And I'm actually I'm hoping that maybe it'll be this month's Patreon. I want to show like genetic variants in that and yep. show the differences. And the topic is going to be raising a puppy on a trajectory, right? Mm. Like rather than just getting a puppy because I want one, like raising a puppy to do something with. Because of that seven, I know at least three – are not like me and Jazz are not keeping those dogs, mm. right? They're We're, project dogs for yeah. yeah. So it's just because we can't travel currently. Uh, we've got the time and mm. thought, why not raise them to film some content with to prepare them for whoever wants them? Mm. Uh, we've got a bit of a trajectory for them, and I think Jordan's is the same. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see the difference. And I think that mm. is one of the big things. Like, of course, with all breeding, the goal is to have you know very little, like a very uniform litter. Like mm. all breeders are sort of you know going for that, but it's not not always the case. In fact, it's quite rare that the, the litter is where you go like, oh, I just couldn't decide they're all exactly the same, right? It's definitely a rarity. I mean, I think you probably see more evenness in male litters. Mm -hmm. They tend to be more rare, but I mean, they've still got their individualism and their personalities. Yeah. Generally, because they've been genetically uninterrupted as far as a working breed, you generally see more just more even temperance across mm -hmm. the board. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think what's been interesting with these puppies is watching the whole litter develop over, because mm. we got them just before Christmas, like literally a few days before Christmas, maybe. They were literally Christmas days. puppies, yeah. Yeah, four or five days before Christmas. And yeah, we had the whole litter at training that night mm. and they were all very similar, right? There was, you know, a little bit of variance between them, but all pretty similar. And now I'm seeing them all at least once a week each and seeing them develop differently, yes. right? And and there's a real interesting sort of case of talking to everyone, which I hope to do better for Patreon and have real interviews with them, but is, you know, like showing is there a genetic component for why they're on the path that they are or is it environmental? And people live with their own dogs differently, right? And mm. and, and and the way that they treat the dogs is different and, and it's interesting to see the way they develop, but then also remove the, you know, remove that variable by having a look at the two that Jazz has living with her quite different, yep. right? And they react differently to the same stimulus. And so it's like, hang on, like <laughs> they're brothers, they're raised in the same home by the same person, mm. but they're quite different. So the idea that we can just blame genetics or training or environment, it it's this package of the whole thing. And then that 
path creates a different branch plan for each puppy. Like they're quite different in a number of ways, mm. which I want to highlight. But it's it's interesting to understand that, right? And I think sometimes we can, as dog trainers, become really wrapped around the axles of genetics, which is very, very important. There's mm. not to say that that's the only thing that matters, but it is very, very important. But then we can look at one dog and say, well, that one's the the litter mate of that one and say, why aren't they the same? They go, well, that's not how genetics work, mm. right? Like they're brothers, yes, but they're not clones. They're individuals. They're different. Well, it's like the movie Twins, isn't it? You never know when you're going to get an Arnie or a Danny DeVito. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, yeah. one thing I have noticed about these puppies where I do see a genetic trait that coming through, mm-hmm. and I'm interested to see where this goes, but Macho has this little stalk and hop that he likes to do, mm-hmm. which I haven't seen in puppies before. And I was talking to Courtney Donlan about it, who works for me now. And she was saying, oh yeah, my little bitch does that. She, yeah. she does the same sort of thing. And I think I was talking to you about it and you said, yeah, one of ours does it. Yeah. So it's a behavior that all of them are doing. So it, you can see that it's an ingrained genetic behavior. Yeah. Like I was watching this little puppy, I'd lay on the ground and he'd sort of stalk at me like a cat. And all of a sudden he'd just do this massive little hop at me Yeah. where- all the puppies that I've been used to in the past, they just run straight at you and just dive into your face mm-hmm. where he would stalk you and hop. And I thought, ah, that's interesting. He's doing it. His sibling sister is doing it and his sibling brother is doing it. Mm. So it'd be interesting to speak to some of the other guys at training on Thursday night and see what their puppies are doing if they do that as well. Yeah. One of the ones Jazz has is especially stalky. He yeah. really likes to stalk. Stalk stuff. and hop. Yeah. 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 This little pounce yes, like a Yeah. Cat. It's a little pan- panther pounce. Yeah. Pan- it's quite pan- cute. Panther pounce. Yeah. It's very cute, but like you're dead right. It's a- it's clearly a genetic trait, yeah. like it's it's ingrained in- Well, if all of them, of them are doing it, or the largest majority of the puppies are doing it, it's a genetic component for sure. Mm. I'd be interested to see if Neha does it, or did it, or the if mother. the sire, the, the mother, or the sire did it as well. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Mm. It's a good one because I think as dog trainers, mm. it can be really easy to just place the blame of anything going wrong onto the owner. And especially say we take crate training, for example, right? Like, you know, I've got a pretty set method for that. I've taught that to lots of people and I've had a lot of success doing it. Yep. And Jazz has components of that. She's she's really, she knows what she's doing, right? Mm. But it's having different results on the two different dogs who are the same, mm. right? So like they're not the same. That's what it clearly shows. And, and I think it's been really, for us, it's been you know, quite uh, enlightening to then be able to say like, oh, you know, like sometimes it is harder than other times, right? Like we can be really guilty as dog trainers of looking at a situation and going, well, you're doing something wrong, right? Like if that dog's still crying in the crate at 12 weeks old, you are doing it wrong. And in this circumstance, we can see and go like, oh, <laughs> that could really happen, mm. right? That really could be the path that that dog was going to take no matter whose hands he was in, right? Yep. Yeah, Mother Nature deals cruel cards sometimes mm. or fair ones. It's very hard to tell. Genetics is such an interesting soup mix. The reason I say that is because when people taste soup, everyone can slightly taste something different. The other day, Narelle made soup and she said, oh, I think it's too salty, but I didn't taste the salt. Mm. I was enjoying the the flavor of the soup and she oh, I think I put too much salt in, it tastes salty, blah, blah, blah. And that's the same thing I find with genetics sometimes. Like there is such a variance in what people will see or what Mm. will surface out of it and what surfaces with the individual as well, like focusing on what they're worried about, what they're enjoying. It's such a variance. Mm. It's tricky, that's for sure. It is tricky. I remember having a chat with a lady called Joy Bells 
who was one of my gurus in the Roddy world, may have mentioned her before, yeah, yeah. but Joy said to me, it does, it just takes a long time to figure this all out. You know, like there are so many variances and so many temperament types and considerations that you have to put into, or, you know, it's basically like a person who dedicates their life to studying scripture or something like that. Like there are so many little layers or, or, or heavy layers that they've got to consider to tell the entire story of it. So when I've spoken to breeders who I believe know what they're doing, and I've seen you engaged in chat with breeders who know what they're talking about in Malinois and Dutchy lines and stuff like that, like you can tell these people really have such an extensive layered knowledge of who the parents are and what their contribution was to the bloodline. Mm-hmm. And even then, you know, like they're very intelligent people who know a lot about their lineage, but yet they can't get everything right or they can't guarantee it's going to exactly play out the way they want to. Mm. They might get one puppy that comes out of a litter of eight that's, you know, like they've been honing it into that puppy and they think, oh, thank God I got one. That's a blessing anyway. Or sometimes they think, you know, it's almost there. It's almost there, but not quite. Mm-hmm. Not what I imagined it will be or the strength of the father didn't carry through. I'm, You know, I may have picked something up from the grandfather, which I really didn't want to influence the line, but it's there nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what's tricky about any kind of puppies mm. with that trajectory to being an adult is different bloodlines have such different maturity rates. Oh, yeah. Especially in, say, in Malinois, like one of the most popular bloodlines here in Australia is like you really at 14 weeks old or thereabouts – it is what it is. Mm. And and they're going to get tougher and they're going to get bigger, but they're really, the they're temperament set. is basically that. And yep. at 14 weeks old, you can make a pretty good assessment. You mm. can be like, yeah, this is worthwhile investing in or not. But then you look at other bloodlines, especially the KMPV stuff, and it like you really have no idea, right? Like mm. it could be- could be 18 months before you really could make a solid decision about that dog on what they're going to be suitable and capable for, mm. which can be very frustrating. And, you know, especially if there is, if you're raising that dog on a trajectory for a purpose, yep. from a financial standpoint, that's a lot of risk that you're taking on. Absolutely. Right? It's a lot of risk to say, well, this dog right now appears not to have the goods for what I need him to have. Mm. But that's not to say that he's not going to be the best dog on the planet at it at, you know, at two years old. Mm. It's one of the really interesting things I think about when I joined the army, I was 19, right? And I went on to selection. And when I finished selection for special forces, I was at that time, I think the third or fifth youngest person to get through, right? Wow. Because it's very uncommon that anyone at 19, I was 20 when I did selection, but that's very uncommon that you get through because you need sort of life experience mm-hmm. and, and you need some like, you need some things to fall back on and you need to, some general toughness, right? That yep. comes of that. Mm. So it's actually quite rare for anyone sort of under 25 to get in. There's been younger people since me. And in fact, there was a guy who was still the back end of 19 was on my selection course. He's younger than me. Yep. And since then, another guy who turned out to be one of the best dudes in the unit probably ever was 18 when he got through. But wow. it's really uncommon, mm. right? And I find myself, this is something I've had arguments with a lot of, you know, tier one sort of dog operating units around the world mm. is that I sometimes think that- Everybody wants dogs young, right? Because it, it increases the working life of you the get dog. The longevity out of it. Yeah. So you know, maybe let's say if a dog it can work until he's eight years old, mm. right? Like that's let's guess a number. And so if we get him at one or one and a half, that's a much longer working life than we would get if we got him at three years old. No one wants a three-year-old dog. Yeah. Right? 
But the problem is, like from my point of view, the selection criteria that what you, the test that you're going to put that dog through mm. is literally the equivalent of the special forces selection course. Because if the dog's going to go into a special forces unit, a SWAT team, or a, you know whatever, right? Whether it's police, military, whatever it's going to be, if you're putting them through that level of selection to find out whether they have the goods or not. You're putting a teenager through that if you're doing it to a, a one to 18-month-old dog. That's mm. a teenager in his brain, right? Yep. And so the issue then I think can often be is that it becomes a little bit self-fulfilling prophecy and that it's really unlikely that any dog's going to pass that selection no matter what, no mm. matter what breed you're looking at, no matter what age they are. It's very unlikely that it's going to happen. But the issue is some do. In the same way, like I passed as a very young person in going into the unit and there have been people who are younger than me, mm. some manage it, but the overwhelming majority of the dogs don't. And then if you were to look at that dog when they are three years old, they probably still wouldn't pass, right? And we then say, well, we made the right decision at 18 months old. We just weren't stuck with this asshole for another 18 months waiting to find out whether we'd make it. But I think sometimes that the test is self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. I think that- by pushing the dog to the breaking point on that test where he does break and he does, you know, back down from a bite or he, he does face an environment, you know, you create an environmental test that he doesn't do well in or whatever. And the experience of having failed that, that test creates a dog that is a test failure. Mm. Whereas if we'd never tested the dog then and waited until he was three years old, you know, the equivalent of 25, 30 year old man, then he would have done much, much better. And having never had the experience of fail, he might have grown into be a dog who would be suitable at that time. So it's something that we're kind of stuck in this awkward sort of tricky position with a mm. lot of working dogs where I think we test them too young mm. and then it's self-fulfilling prophecy. Having failed the test, they're now a test failing dog and we, we give the dog a problem that they might never have gotten. And it's their first time exposed to it. Yeah. Mm. And the argument that goes against that is, well, this dog passed. And you'd say like, yeah, but that dog probably could have passed at three months old. Yeah. Right? Like he was, there was nothing you could do to derail him from that trajectory. Yeah. But, and that exists in people. We see people who get into these units at a very young age, but mm. they're the exception, not the rule. And I think that it's – I totally get it because it's a case of that, you know, we're going to spend a lot of money on this dog. We're going to spend a – you know, we're going to buy him for a heap of money. We want the longest working life out of the dog. And it's crazy to me when you look at it because you're – the dog doesn't really have a choice whether he's in the service or not, right? Like mm. when he's purchased, if he's suitable, he's going to be in that unit until he's no longer suitable. But as a person, imagine we have this thing in the – military in the Australian Army, it's called your ROSO, your return of service obligation, right? So you yep. sign up for four years at a minimum usually. And if they train you in any particular skill, you can then owe them back. And usually that's for really highly specialist stuff like pilots and doctors and that right. kind of stuff, right? Mm. So like if the army trained you as a doctor, if you join the army and say like, hey, I want to be a doctor, they pay you to go to uni because the army doesn't have its own medical school. You yep. go to just normal medical school with everybody else, but instead of paying to go there like they are, you're being paid to go there and your tuition is covered. Mm. But then the army says, however long it took for us to train you to be a doctor, you owe us twice that, right? And right. that's the deal that you go. And then what happens with doctors specifically is they kind of taper off. They end up letting doctors do like part-time so that they can work in private practice somewhere as well to try and keep their retention, yep. right? And same as pilots, right? Like, you know, to, to become a helicopter pilot, 
you know, it costs you, you're looking at sort of 30 odd thousand dollars in tuition fees. Mm. And then to get the air hours up, you're paying for all those air hours yourself. And that's why so many commercial helicopter pilots are ex-military pilots. And it's not because they're so much better. It's not necessarily the case, although some of them are exceptional. It's just because they have the air hours. And right. so when you go for a job and you turn up and you go, I've got 10,000 air hours in a Blackhawk and some other Jono who trained himself and paid for it himself and turns up and says like, you know, I've got what, a thousand air hours <laughs> and I've got my minimum no requirement. Yeah. They go, oh, we go with that guy that's been flying 10,000 mm. hours, right? Yeah. So that's the reason they keep you in. But with a dog, there isn't any of that. So training someone to go into a special forces unit, there is no return of service obligation to that. So if you've already been in the army for four years and you decide, okay, I'm going to go to a special forces unit, no matter what country you're in, no matter what you know, like, so in Australia, you could go to a two commando or SAS or something mm. like that. They will spend millions of dollars training you. And if the day you get your beret, you go, you know what, fellas, this isn't for me. I'm going to discharge. You can't. Right. And so like, take, for example, a javelin missile costs a hundred thousand dollars to pull the trigger on it. Right. Damn. And so you'd have to fire one. You have to learn how to fire it. Yep. Right. So that alone is $100,000 gone. As soon as you pull the trigger on that javelin missile, gone, right? So we make all this big deal about the cost, right? Oh, the cost of that dog. Geez, we can't get him at three years old because he's only going to work till he's eight. So that's only like a five-year work life for us and we're going to pay 30 grand for the dog. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Right? Like I would have shot- Now that I know you're blowing $100,000 missiles for training. Like I would have shot- $10,000 $10,000 worth of ammunition a week, right? That's when I was in, you. That, that's yeah, when I was in the, when I was in the mm. tag, which is like, you know, like the tactical assault group where you're expected to be rescuing hostages and literally shooting, like part of your validation is literally shooting over the shoulder of a live hostage to yep. shoot a target that's behind them, you know, to get that good on the tools and to maintain your skill set, you're shooting tens of thousands of rounds every, probably every month, right? And rounds like a dollar each. The army doesn't get them any cheaper. They probably pay more for them than any civilian <laughs> does, right? Yep. So, like, the amount of money that we're putting into training humans, and same as police, right? By the time you've, like, had all of your training and all of the tactical skills that go into that, your training is probably in the, in the, in the hundreds of thousands, if not the millions, by the time you've done it, right? Mm. But then we look at this dog and go, oh, He's worth 30 grand. We need at least seven years work out of a dog that's thirty going to cost us 30 grand, mm. right? And when you look at it and you go, dude, he's wearing a $20,000 camera, right? Like, you know, the, he's being handled by a handler, right? So this is one of the things that also drives me crazy when you look at sort of police and military service is you go, okay, you've got this guy, this dog handler yep. who currently doesn't have a dog. He's making $120 a year. Mm. And because you don't want to drop 50K on a dog for him, he's currently just getting paid to do fuck all, right? So you're out that money that he's getting paid. And the dog doesn't get paid, so you just buy the dog. And so, like, your return of service on a dog is, it's insanity, Mm -hmm. right? And imagine you get that dog and imagine, you know, let's be crazy and say that you paid $50,000 for a dog that was guaranteed suitable, like he's passed his course, you pay $50,000 for him to go into the service. And he only, he's three when you get him and he works till he's eight. He only makes five years return of service. He costs you 10 grand a year. That's nothing in the scheme of like the force multiplier, you're going to pay, it's only going to cost you $10,000 a year 
to have an extra soldier in the team who doesn't draw a wage, right? He eats like fucking raw meat that you give him. So like he's, you don't have to feed him every day. Mm. Like you do these other guys that like, you have to feed him every day, but it's not costing you a fortune. Right. And he can find explosives. He just by himself, you can send him a hundred meters forward and he'll find explosives. Do you know how much a, an explosive detection and disarming robot costs? Oh, millions. <laughs> right? Yeah, millions. So, like, it's always been really – the maths, when you explain it like that, it just doesn't add up to me why we're then obsessed. Every police force, every working dog unit, they're all obsessed with getting dogs as young as we can mm. to maximise the amount of time in the service that they get. And I think that that really heavily mm. feeds into why so many dogs fail is because we test them too early. Just yeah. as I was saying, I think that if a human being – and it happens all the time, like – people turn up to do selection that they're 20, 19, 20, 21 years old and they fail miserably. And we say to them, Hey man, like that was never going to happen. Like go away, come back in four or five years, mm. like put Get on some, some life experience. Yeah. Harden up a bit. Yeah. And, mm. and it's not usually a physical issue. Like very rarely do people fail those courses because no, of the, in the physical head. thing. Yeah. yeah. It's like, Hey man, you just need to, you know, work it, some stuff out. Yeah. Have some minor hardships in your life that yep. you're easily overcome before you turn up and have this extreme hardship, because mm. this was just overwhelming to you currently. And as people, you can rationalize and go, okay, that was a training assessment. None of that was real. I decided it was too hard for me and I gave up, mm. but I can train myself to get tougher. Well, the dog doesn't know that. He was in a real life situation, gave up and survived. Mm. And so he's going to give up again in the future because that's what caused him to win last time. Right. Mm. So I feel like that really feeds into it. And, and that's one of my you know, I've taken a big divergence here, but that's one of the things that I think about a lot when we're talking about bloodlines of dogs, when they're going to go into the service, like the KMPV stuff that is typically, not always, but typically slower maturing or any bloodline that is known to be slower maturing, they're a big risk from the outset for the vendor or the person that intends to raise them to sell because, mm. you know, I, I can't make an assessment early. But then there's this like, you kind of hit the point of diminishing return on cost where at, you know, for most services, it's sort of eight months to 15 months is where they want to decide whether this dog is any good for them. And I've, you know, frankly, I think a lot of the times in the decision point, deciding whether the dog's any good for them, you ruin the dog. And then the dog is no good to anybody, right? Mm. And worst case, if the dog's in a military program, he probably gets put to sleep at that point, right? Versus if he is a vendor, then they, maybe they can rehome him as unsuitable or whatever. Mm. So I think that's – it upsets me quite a lot because I can look at it from that point of view. And the cost-benefit analysis on that is fucking tiny mm. in the overall scheme of the defense or police's budget, right? Like it, it's tiny in the scheme of things. Especially you look at, say, like – you know, a smaller police unit. We don't do it this way in Australia. Like there's just the state police and they have their dogs. But with the smaller police units in the States, like the vehicle the dog is going to go in is going to be moved around in and the fit out you're going to get for that vehicle is going to cost you 10 times the dog, mm. right? So like I think that we look in the wrong place to where the cost and savings can be made on that kind of stuff. And you're talking about an, a new employee to your unit who can do things that your current employees cannot. Right, yep. like he provides you a service that you do not have without him. Mm. That's my rant for something that we've just pulled up on the spot. It's actually very well concluded, to be honest. I think that's a truly fascinating observation overall. Because yeah, I think people get too hung up on the price. My thoughts around this is the wrong people are making those decisions. 
you know, like bean counters in offices are sitting there and they're looking at cost but not considering everything else. Yeah. Like everybody that I've ever spoken to over 30 years, like in different departments and, you know, whether that's private or government or anything like that, like their whinge is always the same. I think it's legitimate as well is they don't understand. They're not boots on the ground. They're yeah. not They're not running with us. They don't see what we need. They're they're people that are appeasing their minister or their CEO or someone like that to just say, oh, look, I've saved us X amount of dollars a year. But have they really, when you consider what the impact is to the unit or the organization or the company or whatever it is by not considering that dog to fit the outfit? You know, and even to segue into your conversation, I think one of the other points that really needs to be discussed is this could be a dog that potentially could have made it, but because of the handler it was paired with or the person doing the raising at the time, that can have a contributing factor on the timeline of where the dog goes from there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like for argument's sake, I was out on the field last night about quarter to nine. You know, we still had some light. I was doing some play with Macho and we were walking down the field and one of the girls had put a chair behind the wire fence on the yard And he saw it and he balked at it and barked and shat himself, you know, like and had quite an experience to it. And I thought, well, this is an educational moment. Mm -hmm. So I walked over to the chair with him and I started tapping it with a stick that I had and I showed him and then he ran over. And as soon as he ran over, I marked him and, you know, like he was all happy. He ran around and he checked the chair out because I wanted him to learn, you know, rather than have a bad experience with that and just walk inside and think, oh, that's nothing. Don't worry about that. I wanted him to learn and be present in the moment that that's just a chair. You know, it's okay to be scared of it. And my old saying is, I don't care about the reaction. I care about the recovery. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't care that he he shat himself. Like he got scared and he barked and he, he, you know, like he ran up the hill a bit. But when I went over there and he thought, well, you're being brave and I trust you. Everything that you've shown me so far is trustworthy in my small amount of life. Ran over, checked it out. For him, I think that sort of things and those experiences will change the destiny of his lifestyle, of where he's going to go from here. And that's what other people sometimes don't think about when they're, especially in those critical period of development. Yeah. Like it's so important. Absolutely. And I think part of the issue feeding into what I was talking about before and that is that a lot of the handlers of these dogs especially the very top end dogs, the ones that were going to succeed, not because of their training, but mm. in spite of like in spite of their training yes. succeeded. It's not the fault at all of the handlers who don't understand that. It's because that's all they've had their hands exactly. on. Right. And so I think that sometimes putting the, the dog in their hands too early, they can ruin the dog quite by accident just because they don't know that dogs need to be nurtured and developed. Yeah. Especially if you've come into the unit, say you've, you've, you go into the dog unit at whatever military police or whatever you're in. Some people just luck in. Yeah. But I mean, maybe you've got this great interest in dogs, but you'd never, you know, a lot of police and military guys can't own a dog because they don't have the lifestyle that would permit for that. Mm. Right. So they've had this, they've got this great interest in dogs and maybe they do a lot of, like myself, do a lot of research and stuff before they could even get a dog. Yeah. You know, it was only because I had a, like I was married and had, a wife that didn't travel and was home that I could have a dog while I was in the army. Right. Overwhelming majority of guys don't, I can't do that. Right. Because you work shifts, you work Mm. like you just disappear. Dude, I went to work one day expecting everything to be all like a normal work day and didn't come home for six weeks. Right. (laughs) Yeah. No shit. Like that happens. And so what are you going to do with your fucking dog? Your life is on call. Well, I wasn't even on call. Like it was, I was in the not on call company, but the way that this, 
international incident just unfolded yep. was like that afternoon I was in East Timor, right? Yep. And it was like, what the fuck? Yeah. Right? That would have been an interesting call to Jane. Well, she saw it on the news. <laughs> I didn't even call her. <laughs> Dude, I was sat in a, I was flying there in a Blackhawk from yep. Darwin. Yep. Like and it was, a, the UN got attacked there and oh, they, yeah, someone yeah, got killed. Yeah, and so they, yep. they, re, they dispatched us to go and re, like, make safe the UN. Yep. And I was sitting in the helicopter, like a one-way trip in a helicopter, mind you. This is a helicopter that can't get back. It's a, it's going there. It doesn't have enough fuel to turn around. Yep. And I was like, oh, I haven't told my wife. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, oh, fuck. And that, that was actually, for me, that was the day I realized I was like, oh, I can never have kids. Like while I'm in the army, that's impossible because mm. like if I had to pick up my kid from school, like I would have just not turned up. That was a big day for me where I was like, oh, I can't, I can't do this. This is See, people at home now listening to this are probably thinking, oh, that, well, what about that? And I'm thinking, oh, poor Jane, she probably had dinner on the table, was sitting there looking at her watch thinking, oh, I wonder when my husband's going to turn up. Saw it on the news. (laughs) It was crazy. That is crazy. So anyway. Mm. Back to dogs. (laughs) So you could have a real keen interest in being a dog handler and Mm. want to be one and be researching it yourself and then, you know, because you're good on your tools or you, you know, however, you go into the unit. Mm. And so the guys can be the best intentions and and will learn whatever they're taught, but they're taught this is how you handle a fucking like absolute tier one, yep. one percenter psychopath dog. And so their exposure to all working dogs is that they're that because mm. they're the only ones that are in the kennel. Yep. And so by the time that you do your course, the course is typically the dog knows what it's doing, right? Like the dog's paired by someone else mm. and your courses as a handler, you're literally there just to finish the training of the dog, but also bond with the dog and you're learning how to basically drive the vehicle that is the dog. Yep. So it's a hundred percent not their fault. A lot of the time, a younger underprepared dog is put in their hands and they destroy it. They mm. crush it a lot of the time because it's like no this is how you treat a dog the right? character set yeah mm. and it's there's in some places this isn't i'm generalizing right so mm. anyone that's sort of listening and saying hey we don't do that it's like well then i'm not talking about you right but i'm talking about what i see in general is that it can really set back dogs or destroy what could have been an awesome dog just because of the significant experience that he has too early right and it's you know how it is like even with puppies when you're around dog people if someone's, especially if you're going to raise a puppy on a trajectory, right? Like if it's the plan is to be a working dog, you see out there when I know someone, you know, especially we're at a seminar or something like that and someone gets their puppy out, do a bit of socialization and will walk around. And for whatever reason, the puppy just takes a dislike to you and sort of like barks at you. Dog people know to like go, oh my God, like, and pretend they're scared of that puppy, right? Mm. But pet people will do the opposite, right? Yeah, they'll like, chastise so, it. Yeah, and mm. they'll be like, hey, fucking cut that out. Or they'll, you know, not give a reaction because that in a pet dog they need to get rid of, mm. right? But for working dog people, you know, if that puppy just to, for whatever reason decides to fuck you, you give them the big show, right? And, yep. you, and you, you run away and then you encourage the puppy to chase you. Yeah, and, all yeah, that kind all of that stuff. stuff. And yeah. as a handler, like that, the best time that, the best time for those situations to happen is by accident, mm. right? When the puppy really does get startled by someone and decides to go on the front foot instead of like retreat. And that's the the most significant learning event of his life. Like I'll even let people's young dogs bite me with no equipment, right? Like when they're young and it's not going to fuck me up, mm. but it's like the best time in their life. You can give that dog a significant life experience and Absolutely. you can turn him into something that he may not have otherwise turned into. Mm. And it's knowing to do that, right? Yep. And it's like sometimes, you know, 
you put the dog in the wrong hands of the wrong people and you go, hey, this is not a situation. You know, I'm wearing my cams, right? So you're not like part of their IFF is they, they get taught never to bite anyone in the uniform or whatever, right? Mm. IFF is identifying friend from fro, right? So I'm in my camouflage. You can't do that. Smack, right? Like, and, and then the dog's like, he's not at that level in training yet. Like, he can't identify that. Mm. Let him bark at you. Let him feel fucking tough. Let him own this situation. And that's going to be a significant event in this dog's life. And if you don't know to do that, it's not your fault for not doing it, mm. right? You got to learn that. And that only comes from experience. Like, yeah, experience and being around it when it happens and seeing the result of it, mm. right? So I think that that's one of the big issues that I have with puppies in general is I think that we don't allow them to become dogs mm. before we put them in situations designed for dogs, not for puppies. And I think that I've been guilty of that in the past and, and I think that there's lots of people still doing that right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the best educations I ever had in my life, and I'm not encouraging other people to go out and do this, obviously, because there's an ethical um, problem around it. But the best thing or the best lesson I ever learned was when I bred puppies, you know, and actually got to watch them through their stages of development, watching them being born, watching them go from their eyes and ears starting to open, and even the impact that the world has on them for the first time. I remember one of the significant things that happened is I was watching a litter of puppies, my puppies, are Rottweiler puppies that were being born. And I think it got into about between 10, 14 days and their eyes and ears started to open. And their eyes were open and their ears were finally open. I went in there one day and when I went into the room, they all shuddered and, you know, like they were... I'm doing maneuvers that you can see now, but people can't see, but you know, like they were shuddering and they were leering away like head shyness and everything like that. And I'm thinking, holy fuck, what's wrong with them? But they were seeing something for the first time in their life Mm. and hearing something for the first time in their life. And that was a quite a significant moment in their life. I never considered that, you know, Mm. I never considered, you know, you're seeing a shape come into a room for the first time and hearing the noise of my feet on the ground. Mm. You know, I thought, holy shit, that's significant. You know, like I'm present to seeing that actually happen. Mm. So watching all of that and then watching them develop from there, even the way that they would start mouthing at each other for the first time, like they'd wobble over to each other and you can see this initiation of play starting to when their teeth would come through and they'd start hurting each other and learning pain tolerances. And it was just phenomenal to Mm. be present in that moment, like to witness that going on and to see every single day something new was happening in that litter box from, you know, like teetering around and watching the mother cleaning up to her and, you know, like making sure they were fed to even watching her experience of going through pain when they were teething and, biting her nipples and you could just see them sitting there going, oh my God, let's get this over and done with quickly mm. and not wanting to be around them like and cherishing their time out of the litter box. And even, you know, the way the bitch was super possessive and protective of when these newborn puppies were there to six weeks later going, nah, get out of my face. Yeah. You know, like that whole transition that went on there. For me, that was a, it was an experience that, I think redefined and reshaped what I knew about puppies. And each litter that came along, there was always a variance. Like everything that you would see, like you'd learn a little bit more and see something a little bit different. And especially, you know, when you're playing again with that genetic component of dealing with different sire and different dam and uh, uh, and the influence it would have on the litter and how they would respond to life. 
So I tried not to vary things too much when I sort of got a handle on what I needed to do and the impact I needed to have. You know, like, of course, I was adding stimuli into the whelping box when they could hear and see and when they were ready to adjust to it. You know, I was playing sound effects to them all the time. You know, I was strobing lights around them. I was doing different temperature variances, being aware and considerate of, you know, like their own temperature regulation and everything like that. But I was letting them experience warm surfaces, like trying to develop the neurological pathways in their brain. Because, mm-hmm. I, I mean, my limitation on understanding before I read Sapolsky's book, that gave me a, a migrational shift altogether after reading that book. But even, you know, reading Lindsay's books and reading books from Lorenz and everything like that, and, you know, the development and the structure of the brain and everything, like I was really interested in doing everything that I could to prepare them for life after that. Mm-hmm. So. If I backtrack on your story about it's not their fault, you know, like when you're making a point about that, it's not their fault. Absolutely it's not because you're talking about a person who's typecast into a way of thinking. Their exposure has been so limited and it's sort of like a privilege that they've been handed this ultimate dog that everything that comes beneath that, you kind of look at it like, oh, this is substandard to what I'm used to. Yeah. But it's it's not that it's substandard. It's, it's sometimes just different. And to milk that word nuances, it's those little nuances in those dogs that and the variances that they have and the different maturity levels that they have and the different mindset that they have, which will ultimately define how long does this dog need in its timeline in the trajectory that it's got going forward, how long does this dog need now in order to get it prepared to a level where it's satisfactory for the operation that it's going to do? Yeah, 100%. And so one of the things that I think is really important to all of us as dog professionals is like looking outside of what is your normal state of affairs, right? Yeah. Because like it's a Morticia Adams quote, normal is an illusion, right? Mm. There's no such thing as normal. What's normal to the spider is chaos to the fly. Yeah. Right? Good quote. And, and so- you have this idea of to a lot of people, if, if you only see the top end dogs, that's normal. And mm. what anything outside of that is not, right? Yep. But to like, if you get the average dog training professional, you get a normal, you know, pet dog trainer, in-home behavioral training sort of person. Mm. And you put them in front of a like absolute top end military working dog, they're going to be awestruck. They're going to be like, holy fuck, like this is a specimen, right? Mm. But to the people who handle that dog every day, they're like, that's a dog. It's just a Tuesday. That's just just a dog, right? Anything other than this is weird to me. Mm. And when the pet dog owner is looking at that and going, this is, this is weird to me. Right. Mm. How do I like, and and especially I was like this the first time I went into the the kennels in a, in the, the military working dog kennel. I was like, not scared of every dog, but I was like, what do I do around these? And they're like, there's dogs. <laughs> Treat them however you like. It doesn't really matter what you do to these dogs. Like you can set them on fire and they wouldn't care. Like mm. there's nothing you can do to upset these dogs, right? You can get yourself bit real bad, but there's no – like they're, they're set. The, the, that concrete is set, right? Mm. Whereas there's – the younger dogs, less genetically stable. There's, it's very important how you treat them. You have to fucking be careful of every interaction that you have. Something that's been weighing on me a little bit lately, have we ever talked about Valerie when – Jane was pregnant with Rip. Have we talked about that on the I show? I believe we have. Yeah. So, yeah, But recap it. When Jane was pregnant, Valerie had this false pregnancy, mm. right? And it wasn't a little one, right? Like, so dogs are only pregnant for 120-something days or whatever. She was fake pregnant for nearly 200. It just wow. kept going forever, and we couldn't figure out how to get it to stop. She put on weight. She looked so pregnant that- 
I only had two dogs at a time, and the Mally I had was was to sex. So all the evidence was that she was pregnant, but I couldn't figure out. It's how such it a happened. bizarre thing, too, isn't it? Like yeah. it's so fucking bizarre. And she's such a floozy when she's in heat. Like yep. she howls and like I'm available, and <laughs> I want you know you like you're real careful where you take her. One time when she, I think it was. It was either that time or the time before that she was in season. She raped this poor puppy. Like, I felt sorry for this little black. Like, because he was intact, she mm. was just like, you're getting it. And just, <laughs> he was maybe like, he was maybe four months old, this little dog. And yep. she just nailed him. Like, it was proper sexual assault. Right? Yeah. So when she appeared pregnant, I was like, I know that this can't be the case, but all evidence is pointing towards that it is, right? Mm. And I took her into the vet and I was, I spoke to them because I was there with the other dog and, and I said, look, do you mind just having a look at her? Because it's possible. I can't imagine how it could happen, but maybe a dog jumped into my yard, right? That's possible. But usually, and that can happen, but usually you find the dog in your yard because mm. they're motivated to get in. They're not motivated to get out, right? So you kind of find them there afterwards, yep. especially in the city. Mm. And, you know, when I spoke to Sam about it, he was like, dude, life finds a way. He's like, I've seen dogs tie between kennels. Like, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dogs have made it between chain wire fences. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's not impossible. Mm. So I walk her into the vet. The vet gets one look at her and goes, oh, that dog's pregnant, right? Like, she just had the little waddle of a pregnant dog. And she mm. normally weighs about 15 kilos. We put her on the scale. She's like 17 and a half. <laughs> she, yeah. She's like, she's a pregnant dog. Yeah. They put the ultrasound on her. Nothing. There's mm. nothing in there. So it was this that, Jane was pregnant and Val was just going along for the ride, right? Yep. And for the entire time, she's leaking milk all over the house. For the entire time Jane was pregnant, she wouldn't give up Wet on the nursing. idea of it. Yeah. Mm. And then when Rip was born, she eventually gave up on the idea that she was pregnant and was like, I've had my baby. And she she loved him and was trying to feed. It was, it was so strange, right? <laughs> anyway, she's been really maternal her whole life. She mm. loves puppies. She Like you should have seen when I brought Remy home – like she used to legit cuddle him. They'd sleep together. She would correct him. She would do all the right things that would be necessary to teach him about the rules of the house. And like she's she had, was doing with the pups the other night. At yeah. Mm. And she's had enough Mallies come through the home that she knows by the time he got there, she was like, okay, I see what's happening here. Like you will grow up into a dog that could cut me in half. So I have a window in time while I'm bigger than you and you – you should legitimately be scared of me to mm. get in your head. And she mothered him, right? Mm. Like she really, she raised him. And I've even got video. It's not, if you search my name on YouTube, it's, I think it's the first thing I ever put on YouTube was that little black Mally I had one time was like frolicking in the grass. And Valerie does a full like French ring style object guard is mm. hovering over this puppy and a Sharpay comes in, wants to check it out. And now, I think the with Sharpays, I think the reason she did this is because they're designed not to be able to get a read on their intent, right? You can't read their body language really at all. Their mm. face can't change. They've always got their hackles up. Their tail is always curled. There's nothing you can tell in body language. So she just decided like, oh, no, I can't tell what your intentions are. You can't go near this puppy. And she fully hovers over the puppy and every time the Sharpay comes in, she runs out and checks it like full. She didn't even drop her ball. She just like muzzle punches it in the neck <laughs> right? and then runs back and yep. is like hovering over this puppy. The Sharpay tries it a couple of times from a few different angles. I only got two of them on film. And then it's just like, oh, this is too weird. I don't care. Like I'm out of here. See you later. So she fully was protecting that puppy, like object guard style. You can't come near it. I can't read your intent. Mm. She encourages puppies to go play with certain dogs. Like she vets them and then is like, yep, you can go. And I've had in the past a lot of – I've had a lot of referrals from people who have had 
puppies that have had like a critical period problem and I've taken them on and I take the money, but she fixes the problem. Right. And it's kind of hard love. She's like, you know, like come with me and survive or mm. stay here and die. That's up to you. Like, but she's recovered, not all of them, but quite a lot of the puppies we've had in that have had like, you know, significant dog attacks from people taking their puppy to a dog park. And it's had this really bad experience. Mm probably about 50% strike rate in her basically sort of recovering them, right? And when she was four, she's seven now, when she was four, she has this skin allergy, right? And I spoke to the breeder about it and we decided we were never going to breed her, right? That was pretty early on we decided. Yeah. And so I decided to dissex her because it just was, she's four, I think she's probably old enough, you know, she's got the bone structure she needs to have, yep, blah, blah, yep. blah. It's good age of maturity. Mate, I absolutely regret it. It was mm. the worst thing I ever did to her. She had full-blown depression. I've never regretted anything with a dog so much as I did that with her. Yeah, I remember you know, you telling me. Yeah, you know, mm. my place, three stories. Mm. Like she went to the top level where no one was really going at the time and stayed there for two weeks. She only came down to eat a little bit and to go to the bathroom and then she went straight back up there. She wouldn't leave the house. She wouldn't go on a walk. She was properly depressed. Mm. People don't understand how much fuckery happens with your hormones deregulating. Yeah, absolutely. Such a hard thing to, even when you're doing hormone replacement therapy and everything like that, like people- Well, and it's so obvious when mm. you say like a woman's going to have her uterus removed, Mm. it's a no brainer. Fuck, that's really going to fuck with you. We've got to like hormone replacement therapy and we've got to make sure that like, we're going to expect a significant change in behavior from you, right? Mm. Like we're going to, but in a dog, we're just like, nah, whip them out. Like no big deal. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, holy fuck. And when people like do sexing puppies early and it's like, you wonder why he's immature for the rest of his life. Like, Or there's a string of other medical issues going on. Mm. Anyway, that's outside my wheelhouse, but I, I know that, I regretted doing it because mm. she had a clear depression. And what's happened over the last probably in the last 12 months, maybe 18 months, I've had a string of puppies come to me that were motherless, right? That for whatever reason, the mothers didn't raise a puppy where they died in whelp was one of them. Mm. One was that she ate a couple of the babies. And so they took the puppies away from her. And yep. and then most recently, these ones was Nihar didn't, she was kind of too rough with them. So the girls took her off of them, right? Mm. So what's been happening over the last couple of years is I thought, Valerie was no longer, she used to love puppies so much. And I thought that what had happened was she was no longer very maternal. Like I thought because we dissexed her that that she's lost that. Right. And that like me and Jane were laughing at her, calling her a barren old witch. Now we're like, Oh, you barren old witch. Don't even like puppies anymore. But then something happened the other day was we, I saw this puppy in the park, like someone shouldn't have had their puppy there. Right. And with a lot of the dogs that we've been getting into the home, she's been, just giving them corrections and nothing else, right? Mm -hmm. The love and affection that she showed to a lot of the dogs prior, she hasn't, right? Mm -hmm. And I was surprised when we had uh, that little GSD that I had because I expected like mostly the dogs that I get are Mallies, right? And I thought he looks enough like a Mallie. He's a, you know, pointy-eared herder that she's going to want to develop a bond with this dog. Mm. And eventually she did, but it was a lot of being cold-hearted with him right at the start. And it occurred to me that over the last couple of years, she still loves puppies because I saw this puppy in the park that had no business being there and she was so protective of it again, but it didn't need, didn't need to be disciplined. Mm. It needed to be protected. And she still has that within her, but she's been giving these puppies that I get into the house what they need. Mm. Right. So take, for example, a little bull terrier that I had, no mother. 
and she was growling at it. She's still possess- she's possessive over me. She doesn't like other dogs coming near me, like when it's her time to cuddle. Like mm-hmm. in general, it's fine, but when she's sitting in my lap, it's like, no, this is my special time. Yep. Mate, she was teeth stripped, showing every sign of aggression that a dog can possibly show to another one. And this little bull terrier moron just was like oblivious. Just could not read that in any way, right? So she gave it a good few corrections before it eventually figured out, okay, when she shows me her teeth and growls at me, and she eventually got it to the point where that dog would understand when a dog growls at me, I should back off, right? How dare she? Yeah. How dare she use a form of punishment? A form of punishment, a proper correction. Yep. But here's the thing. Remy has never met a dog he doesn't fucking love. Mm. And with that Bull Terrier and all the other dogs, and same as what happened with that GST, big play bow shits himself and run away, right? And it's just because he's big and they're small. Mm. And because she's small, they're like, you're not scary because you're small. You Mm. can't damage me. So it was clear that Remy's big, therefore scary, Mm. right? And and who his intention, his body language, everything a dog you would expect should be able to read was 100% friendly. He And he's quite a gentle dog with young dogs. He's not going to hurt them. Mm. 100% friendly. And the dogs have all been like, oh, my God, you're scary, and run away and leave poor Remy like, what have I done, <laughs> right? Whereas Valerie, who's showing every sign of I fucking hate you and I'll kill you if I get the chance, they're like, you're not really very much bigger than me, so that's of no concern to me. Yeah. Right? And it really it, – it was, it was shocking to me and it took a long while for me to understand it and it wasn't until I saw her with it was reading her signals perfectly and then she was very quick to love it, I guess, mm. comfort it and want to spend time with it, is that, you know, we talk about, you talk about this positive first approach. She doesn't. She's disciplined first. Mm. She's like, no, you have to understand these rules and then I, you have to underquen my, understand my quitting signal. We can't start unless you understand my my stopping signal, mm. right? And when you understand that, then we can have a good time and I can play with you and whatever. But you have to understand when I say this, it's fucking over and you shouldn't do stuff like that. Anyway, it occurred to me that's what she's doing. It's not that she's just some barren old witch now who hates puppies. She's still like, no, that's what that puppy needs, mm. right? That's what that one needs. And it, it made me think a lot, like I went down this deep rabbit hole about how many pet dogs do you reckon you've encountered? And they, you don't come to see, they don't come to see you until they're like three, four years old, two years old, whatever, right? Until they've established problems. And they've got all these behavioral issues, whether they're aggressive, whether they're timid, mm. whatever. And I wonder how many of those could be associated to the fact that maybe that was a motherless puppy. Mm. And as a, if it's a pet shop dog, you'd have fucking no idea, right? If it's a rescue, that's probably the case, right? And and if it's a puppy farm dog and the mother didn't know how to be a dog because it was a puppy farm dog and so it hadn't passed on the right information. Mm. Like there's so many instances where the average person's dog, the average like pet owner on the street could tell you nothing about the mother of the dog. Mm. I wonder how many of what becomes a really ingrained behavioral problem is just because they weren't taught dog behavior by their mother, those warning signs. Mm. Because it's been clear to me over the last 18 months, all of the dogs that I've had come into my home that didn't have a mother who raised them could not read the warning signs of a dog and they they misinterpreted play, all of them, and they misinterpreted aggression, all of them. Mm. 
And so it only takes your little puppy who's never had a mother to teach it this is a warning signal, ignores the warning signal, and then gets nailed. And then is like, well, it came from nowhere. Mm. Therefore, all dogs are dangerous and I have to go, I'm either now going to be timid and scared of dogs for the rest of my life or I'm going to be aggressive to make sure that never happens to me. Like that's kind of the two branch plans, right? Like that's really the only way it goes. You're starting to venture into what Sapolsky is talking about in the book Behave because he really goes into great detail about how that has an impact on the growing brain. Mm. You know, like I mean a dog that's been raised in a normal litter with a parent I mean, they develop the normal picture in the brain. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're starting to talk about singles and puppies who haven't been exposed or that nature-nurture component that's going on in the litter box or wherever they've been bred, out in the barn or whatever, like they're rough and tumbling, they're playing with each other, they're getting corrections, they're getting quitting signals from the the mother and so forth. I mean, I've got a video, you know, Layla that used Mm -hmm. to work here now in Sweden, Mm -hmm. she's got Randy's daughter, Mm -hmm. Naya. I've got a video of there were three puppies in that litter and- there was Naya and her two brothers. Those two are sort of like feeding and frolicking. And one of the the larger brother, the, he was a pure black. He went to live in, in Victoria. As a little pup, they're about six weeks old in this video. Like he's playing with his mother and you can see her elevating her level of handling him and managing him as he's starting to get more aggressive. You know, like he's biting her paws. She's sort of like pulling her paws away and, you know, like, if it was translated, she'd be going, quit it, stop it. But he's starting to get more pushy and he's jumping at her face and biting her. And then she's grabbing him by the neck and slamming him onto the ground. As gentle and as caring as a mother needs to be. But you can see as he's pushing it, she's raising a, a notch above him. So you can actually see this backwards and forwards going on where she's saying, well, son, now you're going to learn from yeah. your mother on what it's like to be corrected because yeah. you're pushing the point. And getting to sit there and watch these type of things and evaluate them, like, you don't have to do anything. You just have to be an observer at this point in time. Like, she's not killing the pups. They're not in danger. They're not going to get ripped apart or anything like that. They're just being schooled. And that's important to be an observer and sit back and watch those type of things, like you did with Valerie and so forth, where other people get nervous about these situations and they've always got to – they get stuck into it and they interfere too much and they really prevent something that's going to hone the destiny. You know, like I talked about the destiny of – who Macho is becoming and, you know, even the who your pups are becoming. The less interfering I do, like there's some that I have to do to forge who he needs to be for what I want him to become, you know, and that's just sort of establishing a direction of where I want him to go. Mm-hmm. But as far as the things that he needs to naturally do on his own, the path that he needs to walk alone – They're things that I need to not interfere with so much. And that takes time to learn that. Mm. You know, it's a skill set that don't understand. You have to go through a lot of dogs to get to that point where you're thinking to yourself, now I know what I don't need to do. Mm. And that's an important thing. You know, like we spend so much time in our lifestyle thinking this is what I need to do. We don't think about the things that we don't need to do. Mm. They play such an important part in the development and structure of your new puppy, turning it into the dog that you're trying to or need it to be. Mm. Yeah, mate. And honestly, it really, really got me thinking about Mm. 
how many, especially in, like say in working dogs, the way they interact with other dogs really could matter for two shits. They're not going to get to, right? Yeah. Like as long as they enjoy working more than they enjoy either playing with or killing other dogs, mm. you're fine, right? Whether they're dog aggressive or dog friendly, as long as they enjoy the work more than that, it doesn't matter for two shits, right? Mm. Most working dog people would probably agree with that. If your dog's not social, it's a little bit of a pain in the ass, but it's not the end of the world. But the, one of the key criteria for a pet dog is that it is sociability, social, right? Yeah. And not like overly social where it's a pain in everybody's ass. But and enough not, not to be a legal yeah, ramification. And, yeah. And not enough so that it's like a problem around other dogs. There's that sweet spot mm. where I think most dogs fall. Yep. But I really worry about it because there's, you know, it's something that I wanted to discuss with our guest today because I know he feels passionately about it and maybe next week we will. It's and it, it, we've touched on it before, is without dog sports, and dare I say it, dog shows, right? As much as I'm fucking an anti-show, without purpose breeding, imagine dog sports were banned today and dog shows were gone. In 30 years, dogs would be so fucked up that we would have to live and our whole lives would be totally different around you, dogs. You know, you're you're talking about a possibility. Yeah, I, and and like I'm not talking scary... just bite sports. I'm talking about any yeah, kind ownership, of dog sports. Ownership. Well, well, purpose breeding is mm. what I'm. That's really what it comes down to for me is mm. purpose breeding, where there's a test, yep. right? Like even in dog shows, the dog has to stand for his exam and not bite the fucking judge. Like there's a level of nerve that is required of that, right? Mm. And in the sports, no matter what it is, you're proving this dog has the capability to do what he was bred to do. And so purpose breeding, no matter why you're a breeder, if you're breeding for more than just making money, then you're producing a dog that is the right kind of dog. Like it's a dog with a purpose that is designed to fit into the society that we've created, mm -hmm. right? Now, dogs will survive without us. I'm not saying dogs are going to go extinct. I think that that like the dog as we know it would go extinct because they've we've engineered them over millennia mm. to fit into our society. And our society has changed so rapidly over you know, the last hundred years that we really have to be careful. That's why me and you have a job. There weren't dog trainers a hundred years ago. Like it, no, like you didn't need a dog trainer. No, you were circus folk or gypsies yeah. or something like that. That's right. But mm. that's why there's a job now is because we've rapidly changed our society so quickly mm. that dogs haven't been able to just genetically, they weren't genetically selected for this world anymore. And we have to teach them how to survive in this world. Right. That's why we have fences where we didn't used to, and dogs get put away in crates where they didn't used to, because we weren't just cars fucking that could run him well dogs were like farm animals at one exactly. stage they were either out helping you hunt down your dinner or they were out in the barn or something like that whereas now they're more seen in that anthropomorphic sort of style yeah of, this is my fur baby yeah and mate mm. the amount of especially in my area the hate that you can get for having a purebred dog is unbelievable or not even just that your fact the dog is purebred but that you went to a breeder yeah you post in say the average like fur baby mummy Facebook group that you're looking for a particular breeder. Like I dare you to get into like where I live in the inner West pets group and say, I am looking, anyone put me in touch with a breeder of X breed. doesn't matter what it is. People will cut you to fucking pieces saying, why aren't you going to rescue and blah, blah, blah. Right. And it's like, yeah, that's cool. And if your heart takes you to rescue, I'd never talk anyone out of that. But ethical breeding to get puppies set up for success is mm. so important because dogs, it, it appears to me, dogs can't read dog body language without being taught it. Mm -hmm. They need another dog who understands you don't get this 
I'm going to teach you how, what I mean by this. Yeah, it's a life experience. Because dogs, you know, they've proven, there's a whole books on this, the genius of dogs and stuff like that. And I can't remember the people that did the experiment, but like a dog is designed to read human body language. Mm. They come hardwired. They know how to do that, right? But it appears to me they don't come hardwired how to read other dog body language. And I'll bet you the overwhelming majority of the behavior cases that you and I have ever dealt with in our lives I would bet goes back to a single experience that the dog either got or missed out on as a puppy and therefore makes bad decisions in its life. Mm. I'll bet that's the majority of the behavior problems that we get because the majority of like uh, the overwhelming majority of people who just have a normal dog that they live this amazing life with, they never engage with a trainer. The dog sits when they tell them to sometimes, but it always comes back. And to be honest, it probably never goes anywhere that it needs calling back because Mm. it's got that little bit of separation angle, just enough, you know, separation anxiety that it's happy in the home alone, but it follows you around when you're outside. So a lot of people say, yeah, my dog's got a recall. They've never recalled the dog once. They just start walking off and the dog goes, oh shit, I better go with you. You know, just the way the average normal person lives with their dog. The people who fall, who are outliers to that, their dog is a problem. I would say almost always there's a reason that happened. And it, and if it's a, not a problem with people, but a problem with other dogs, it's because of a failure of the mother of the dog or a very early life experience that led it to go that way. Mm. And the very early life experience was probably could be traced to the failure of the mother of another dog. Mm-hmm. Right. So like you get your puppy at eight weeks old, he's killing it. His mum did a great job. He understands dog body language. And then some other asshole dog who's two years old just bites him with Without any of the warning signals because no one taught him about warning signals and yep. he just goes to that and you never gave your dog the opportunity to read his body language. You didn't give away any of the things. So like, it, I don't know. I think about it a lot, man. It really harps on me. And I look at like the, the way that my dog who's very maternal and I would love to take credit. And you know, when I talk about like people bring their dogs to me that have had issues and she's fixed them, mm. like I take the money, but <laughs> like, I don't actually do anything. <laughs> Right. Just valorize them. Yeah. yeah. Aside from leaving them in the yard with her and I feed them and I clip the leash up to them when we go places, like she does all the work. Mm. Uh, and I'm, I, I've been not doing it except for people who know, like I, re- I probably shouldn't even be saying it here. Don't anyone refer me for this because I'm not going to do it. But like people close to me that know and ask specifically, hey, can you put Val under this dog for me? It's the only ones I've done it because I feel bad for her because I just – she doesn't enjoy it anymore, I don't think, mm. especially with the motherless ones, the ones that really need to learn. When they've had an issue, she's not too bad, right? Yep. But these ones that come into the home and they're like, I don't understand. She's like, fucking hell, yeah. another one. And, and and I worry, like, mate, some of the stuff she's done to puppies, if you saw it, you want to interrupt. You want to be like, holy shit, she's hurting that dog. And she's all noise and she smashes them. But when you look at it, she's muzzle punching them. Mm. She doesn't hurt them. She's just showing them like, if I chose to, I could fuck you up. Mm. I choose not to, but I will if you continue down this path. And of course they don't continue down that path. But what she does is recover them. That's the difference between like her with, you know, a dog that just attacks your dog and then leaves and whether it really damages a dog or not is the difference between her is she's then, she never holds a grudge. Mm. She's like, no, you just can't do that. You can do all these other things and you're safe. I'm not going to pursue you beyond you've crossed that boundary and you can't cross that boundary again. It really weighs on my mind because I honestly believe that so many of the behavioral problems that we as trainers have to face, and now we've got to re-educate this dog, probably could have come down to like a 30-second experience in that dog's life. Mm. And if it had gone, if they'd zigged instead of zagged, 
there'd be a whole nother whole nother creature. And I think that's one of the big things with puppies is those single event learning mm. and how critical as an owner or a handler, whatever can look like no big deal, right? Like this is like a, just a tiny little event can set that dog on a path that is completely separate for the rest of its life. I had two friends at one point in my life. One was a CO of a special forces unit and the other was the head of a biker unit. And they were the same person, mate, same personality. They yeah, were just split by life experience. Life experience. You and I have debated this movie many times and it's redefined a lot of my thinking processes now, the movie The Joker. Yeah, yeah. And it's that, you know, that story that you're thinking about now. Like I think about who you could have been as opposed to who you are now yeah. on the experiences of life you had. Yeah. You know, like I think about some of the things that have happened to me over my experience of my life growing up as a child and some of the things that in the past I've really felt sorry for myself about. And, you know, I thought I wish this didn't happen and I wish I wasn't in this situation, but maybe it, it was meant to be. Maybe that experience I needed at the time. I don't know. It wasn't pleasant at the time. I, I understand that much, but maybe – who would I be without that mm. today? That fucks with your head. Yeah. You know, when you sit down to contemplate that sort of thing and you sort of like vanish inside yourself for a period yeah. of time and you come out on the other side, you think, wow. Well, mate, I looked at it. So I, I knew these two guys at the same time and was, you know, good enough friends with both of them that I could sort of, I was so interested in it that I really asked them both a lot of questions about you interviewed it, right? them. Yeah. Mm. And so they even look similar. They were about the same age, both hyper intelligent, like- yep. You don't get to those positions without being super smart, yeah. super, super smart men, super violent, yep. like capacity for violence beyond what anybody would consider normal. Yep. Super caring, both of them. Mm. And one of them, like I said, is the leader, the boss of a special forces unit. And the other is the same position basically for criminals. Yep. Right. And they're Vikings. It came, they're Spartans. Well, it came down yeah. to. Uh, the one who was a criminal, he wasn't born in Australia and couldn't speak English and was bullied as a seven-year-old and kicked the shit out of the bully. Like it just got to the point where he was like, nah, this is how I go. And then was like, oh, got in trouble for that. And then was you know, like put into the group of people who are in trouble. And that was the zig. The other yep. one zagged and he zigged and they are, mm. they could easily change roles and do each other's jobs in a heartbeat, right? Like they essentially were just on different teams. One was the good guy, one was the bad guy. Mm. And it was a real lesson for me in like good guys versus bad guys. Like it's really the same character. It's just a life experience that caused a chain reaction of events. But that's the same with puppies, right? Like we get these puppies and you think, oh, I'm just going to go down the dog park and your puppy gets bitten or whatever by one dog. And that can alter the course of his trajectory forever. And it can be a thing like it's potentially no coming back from that. Yep. Like that is the path that he is on now and there's no coming back. You can try as you might. You can put Valerie in and we can give it a 50% chance, right? But like that's important and that happens in people, that happens in puppies and those early experiences. Mm. But honestly, I'm obsessed with it at the moment just because of having seen it so much is that I think that those early life experience with other dogs, because later on, what's going to take a dog a few minutes, a few days, whatever, they're going to teach them. That is going to be months and months of work with an adult dog to change the way they feel about these dogs. And you're never going to teach them correctly. Like you're going to be able to, you know, change the way they react to stimulus, mm. but really not their understanding of it, I don't think, right? Like yep. you're still just going for conditioned responses. When you get a dog that can't read dog body language and thinks that all dogs are going to kill him or, you know, and wants to run away versus wants to go forward and kill them first, like whichever one it is. 
they're probably going to feel that way for the rest of their life, right? It's yeah, there's your, not much, not much you can do other than sort of. You take, can give them an alternate behaviour to display. That's right. Well, the alternate behaviour usually, for me, I don't know what you're going, what your response to this. My response to people now is kind of phase out thinking about that dog or that yeah. issue and and focus more on you and yeah. what you're providing because in the long run, the more that they're aware of that dog, the more they're going to look at it, the more the problem is going to be present in their mind. Whereas you know, I think behavior or training methodologies these days have focused more on let's refocus the dog back on what's important in life now yeah. rather than what's not. Yeah. Mm. To sort of tie that in a knot, it stresses me out quite a bit that I think I've raised some great dogs. Like come through my hands, I've put out some dogs that are fucking amazing. And my own dogs, I trust implicitly you know, around anyone. Like I know Remy's a lunatic. I know he's going to annoy you, but I'm not ever worried about him hurting someone in the wrong context. Mm. People can bring their dog over. Like it's no problem. He's fine. At the end of club, we can have puppies out. He's out. They can take toys off of him. He'll let them take toys. But exactly like Randy, like he'll play the game and he'll he'll fuck around with them and it's mm. safe. Of course you keep an eye on it because we're not idiots, but it's never in my mind that he's going to fuck up someone's dog. I'm not going to cause that. And I've kind of always thought like, yeah, I raise dogs like that. And then I was like, no, I probably don't. Like <laughs> the dogs that I have create an environment where that's the norm. But you've been present to it. And to understand that, you have to be present to it. And you have to engineer it in a way that allows it to happen. Yeah. Like listening to you talking about Valerie and her raising techniques, I was out in the backyard with Randy and Macho the other day. I've been progressively allowing them to have more and more time with each other. And the other day, Randy had a stick and he was enjoying himself and Macho went over to him. And I knew this was going to be an educational moment because Randy growled at him. I knew Macho was going to get his first nip from Randy and I was happy to let that happen. I need to explain the context of this so people don't go, oh my God, you monster. I knew this was going to happen and I thought today is the day that this needs to happen. And I know Randy's character type. I know him intimately. I know what he's capable of and I know what he will do within reason. You know, there's always that variance, but within reason, I know that dog very well. So I sat there on the grass and I watched him. Randy growled at him. Macho pushed it. He then showed his teeth to him. He gave him a very big display of all these pearly whites. And then Macho sort of sat there and he moved backwards, but then he came back again and then Randy nipped him and he squealed. Randy then looked at me and he stared me right in the eye and I smiled at him and he wagged his tail and he went on chewing his stick and then Macho went and found an alternate stick to play with. Yeah. And I thought, perfect. Yeah, yeah. That was the bubble that I needed to allow to happen for Macho to realise when Randy tells me no – Don't fucking push it beyond that point. Otherwise, he would never learn and there would be a horrendous fight between them. Yeah. And the difference is he knows when Randy tells me no. Yes. I should change my behavior. He gave him the quitting signal and he ignored it. Yeah. So he faces the consequences. What he didn't learn, and this is what most dogs learn when people misdo that, is Randy is dangerous. Right. Right. He sat next to him chewing his stick yeah. and they, they were in harmony together. Yes. There was balance achieved right there. That's the difference, mm. right? Yeah. And so I got kind of wrapped up around the axles about this. I was like, imagine, God forbid, something happened to both my dogs and they're, they're both dead mm. and I have to start again. I don't, I can't recreate that. Right? Like yeah, I can't, it's a lot of there's a lot of context that goes into the development yeah, of that. Like mm. I need that overlap of my dogs. Yeah, I need that because one teaches the other the the way that we live. Yeah, and um, 
it's quite scary to think that. And this is one I think, you know, for the average pet person, like I say, really to be close to stipulate, like in working dogs, I don't think it's that important, right? Because you, you, it, how they interact with dogs is not so important. It's handy, but it's not so important. But if you're just getting a pet, especially if you are a trainer who helps people source dogs, like, you know, regularly people, it, they're kind of the dream client, right? When they mm-hmm. come to you and say, hey, I want to get a dog. Can you help me choose the right one? Man, it's like that. It's so important that they had a good mum. I can't even like so important they had a good mum. And if they didn't, then you need to have a dog or find a dog that can give them those lessons. The surrogate. Yeah. And mm. that doesn't happen fast because there's got to be trust in the relationship for a correction to be effective. Mm. Otherwise, the dog just goes, fuck, that dog attacked me. Yep. Right. It's got to be like that dog can be nice to me and will recover me. Yeah. Understanding but, context. Yeah. Mm. And go like, oh, I this was an ass, this was a dick move of me. It mm. resulted in me being warned. And then when I ignored the warning, I was eventually punished. Right. Yeah. And understanding the precursors around that. Yeah. And mm. and the dog keeping the context specific. So mm. it's like, you just can't take my things. You mm. can have your own thing right here next to me. That's fine. I'm down with that. Yep. Right. We can enjoy things together. That's fine. But you can't take mine. Yeah. Anyway, man, it's a, it's a lot to think about. It's a little bit. This is really going down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Honestly, the time's flown by in this conversation because this is one of the ones that I've truly enjoyed having. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I can see the fascination for you when you're talking about this because there's so many variances and so many things to think about. I think for a lot of us, when we really get it as trainers, this is one of those things that is the essence or the seeding of, of where we are going and what we're doing, you know, and it emanates from there because you kind of look at it and think, holy shit, this is the building blocks of where I really need to go and how I need to create what I'm doing and, and define who I am as a trainer and what I understand about behavior. You just think about it and it all bolts onto the side of this. This is the core. And then everything starts to grow around this. And you're thinking, now that I've got this right, everything is playing out so well for me because I can just carry it forward so neatly. Mm, it's amazing. Right? It is really amazing. It's I a wanna, beautiful thing. It's so beautiful. I want to just, you know, like Remy kind of gets the flowers these days because people are interested in the way I train dogs mm. and that's what I like to show. And and the overwhelming majority of my clients that I train with are interested in the types of things that I do with him. Mm. But that fucking Valerie, like she is the cornerstone of everything that yep. I do in dogs. And he wouldn't be what he is without her. Yeah. And- like the amount of dogs that she's helped. The, first of all, there's the whole video series. And you may not have been who you are without her because she Absolutely was a learning not. platform for you. No way. Mm. And yeah. when you look at it and people talk about, you know, she's this sweetheart, she's this amazing little dog. Well, first of all, good genetics. Mm. Alex Hill, Canicula Kennels, thank you very much. You bred a phenomenal little dog, right? But then, you know, so she got a ton of training because we had that whole video series on how to raise a puppy. So I did everything right with mm. her. But then what used to happen as well was I, she stayed with me, but Sam used to live right next to the army base. So when I would drive to work, I would drop her at his place while I was at work. And then we were trained together for the video series after work. Right. So she used to spend all day with Sam's Gwen, who is like, you know, the super, the super mum of Malinois. Right. So like she had everything right. Mm. So it's like, there's so many pieces to that puzzle and I am resp- I am a fucking small one in her turning out to be the kind of dog that she is, mm. right? Like it's so complex. And when you look at it, you can go, like, it would be so easy for me to go, yeah, I trained her that way. She is that way because of me. It would be so easy for me to say that, but it's 
false. It's the web of destiny. There's so much. And if any one of those things were different, yep. she'd be yeah. different. Imagine she'd be that, different. Right? I'd like, be different. See, that was the thing that I had on the complications of sorting out my own lifestyle, like thinking if I didn't meet this person at this time or that didn't happen to me, like that unfortunate situation, I would have never have met this person yeah. who would never have introduced me to these people and yeah. then I would never have done that. It's like watching a Bill and Ted adventure and watching them, you know, change like flying. One in the yeah, past, changing yeah. one thing in the past and flying. or It's the butterfly effect. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Wow. All right. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. Yeah. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Yes. If you want to support the show, please do that. We were just talking about some upgrades that we're potentially going to do. Even including a studio, hopefully, in the future. Yeah, maybe Glenn's Whisper Room could finally be on the on the cards. We've got so many exciting things doing, and Patreon people are the only reason that's possible is because of you. Yeah. So on the Patreon, you know, we've had overwhelming support. We're always thanking you guys and, and it's heartfelt and we love it. And like we said from the start, it's to improve the show. Mm. That's what we're doing. You guys bought me an amazing camera that we're going to be changing the layout of some of the format on. Hopefully I'm renovating this month. Hopefully I can get the video done in time. I've got a backup that I can put out, but I don't want to. Hopefully that it's done in time for this month, but we keep, putting it back in and changing the format of the show and trying to bring more content. So please, that's where your dollars are going. Please feel good about that, that it's going into better production, better value. This is not our job. Yeah. It's our passion though. I make money doing other stuff. Yeah. This is all the money that you guys give us goes back into making more content. This is a labor guys. of love. Yeah. Hey, if you want to see the quality of what we're talking about, check out Pat's YouTube yes. channel. Yes. I So <laughs> I very selfishly, not selfishly, I want to, it's not that I want to make money through it, but I have decided as a goal I want to monetize my YouTube. Yep. So to do you? that, yeah. So to do that, you need a thousand subscribers and four thousand hours of public video watch time within twelve months. Yep. And the way that I've been used YouTube in the past is I just use it as a place to store videos that I can send people links to. That's all I've really ever used it for. Mm -hmm. So I have over a thousand subscribers. The more the merrier. Please get on there and subscribe. But the watch hours is what I need to get. And so it's just my goal. I want to try and do that. Then there'll be ads in front of my videos. And so we're going to be putting out more content and I want to start doing kind of not vlogs, but just experiences. Yeah. Mm. And I'm kind of, that's my goal is to sort of spread the podcast and make some very like shareable content yep. that, so one of the video, I won't say it because people will steal it, but I want to try and make some stuff that us as dog training professionals, enthusiasts, and people who understand dogs, I want a repository of information, a mm. repos repository stick up your ass. Don't yeah. do that. Yeah. No, don't do Don't that. stick my YouTube content no, up your no. ass. I want a place for information yep. where us as dog training professionals can share quick links to people that are is real dog training yep. rather than kind of highly stylized nonsense bullshit. Mm. I want some like actual dog training advice that I, I'm going to make some videos that you will be able to share to people who are not necessarily in the industry. The production quality will be good enough that people will watch it, yep. but it will be real advice rather than fucking bullshit that seems to be flooded all are over Are you going to swear on it? I probably won't. Oh, I'll swear a little bit. You've changed. I might say shit. Oh, maybe some fucks. 
Hardcore. I'll probably swear. <laughs> How am I going to know? What are the odds that I couldn't know? Uh, I don't like the odds. Anyway, so check out that. Jump on YouTube. Search yep. my name. Please mm. subscribe there. Tell yes. your friends. That'd be good. And when this stuff comes out, please like, rate, share, subscribe, all that. Same as you do with the podcast. He's been putting a lot of effort into it too. Like, you know, there's a lot of hundreds of hours worth of work over a period of time that he's really put into it. Like, making sure that he's getting the, the angles right. The, the hard part is learning. Like, we yeah. dog people, right? And yeah. then- if you want to do well in the media space, you've you got to get to, technical. You have to get good at it, yeah, right? It's like a second. Technical. It's like a whole second fucking trade that you need to have. Well, people didn't realize the amount of time and research and money that we pre-invested into all of this before Patreon came yeah. along, you know, and then had to learn how to do it all because we had no idea how to do it. We were yeah. learning how to build this whole experience from the get-go. And I'm telling you, and I expressly point this out every time, is that Patreon really was a fucking godsend. Yeah. It really changed and defined what we could do with the show. Well, we were about 10 grand in before we oh, yeah, started yeah, easy. Patreon. Like well, I bought this, this computer and-, and, you know, like the mixer and the mics and yeah. everything like that. I think between us, we dropped 10 grand on yeah, it. Yeah, pretty easily. Yeah. I think people don't understand the production quality, how long it takes you. And then, like, you know, now that I'm learning to put through proper video editing rather than just put to like video for it. Like in my mind in the past, video editing was I have this clip and this clip and I want to make them one clip. And no. like how do I join them together? <laughs> and it's like, no, 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 no. And they don't understand how many times you've got to watch it back. And that's the killer. That's like the it's killer. the time component yeah. of like, okay, I've got all the footage that I need. And I've put together all the content now to edit it together. You're right. Like what you say in the podcast, it's basically triple the length of the video Mm. because you've got to watch it that many times. Yeah. Minimum, right? Minimum triple the length. Yeah. Like I've got to scrub back, listen, scrub back, listen, scrub back, listen, scrub back, listen. And then I've got to listen to the final copy. Yeah. Just to make sure that I haven't left anything in there that shouldn't have been in there yeah. or that it sounds good. And yeah. the real thing behind it, you know, like the I don't want to spend too much time on this, but the real thing behind it is I want this podcast to sound nice to people's ears when they're listening to it. Yeah. Like I like the quality because it needs to sound nice to me because I'm fussy about what I listen to. And then when I can hear it and I think, yep, Pat sounds good. The information's good. I sound good. The information's good. You know, there's been times where I've cut like, minutes and minutes and minutes of me waffling out of there because I just think it has no context to it. Mm. So I just take it out. I listen to it and I think, ah, oh, that's just shit. I'm taking all that out. It's horrible. And sound is so hard to get right. Sound is so hard to get right. To get rid of the hiss in the background. Yeah. It's especially annoying where I live because of the fucking cinema that's next door and they air and the planes in the back flying over the plane. I have to record in three-minute chunks because they're yeah. three minutes between planes. It's a... Anyway, that's my plight. I thanks, Patreon. Yeah, thanks, guys. You guys are the best. Yeah, what about Teespring? Yes. Wall tapestries. You can get a wall tapestry, and it turns out people are actually getting those, which is amazing. I'm just smiling like the Cheshire cat here because Pat <laughs> used to think, who would buy a fucking wall tapestry? <laughs> well, well, let me tell you, people are buying them, and they're putting them up in their little Evidently, in their training sheds, spaces. in their training spaces. Tracy Mammon. Yeah. Who else got one? There was somebody one else. person. That's enough. No, there's a bit of few. Yeah. It's been good. Yeah. All right, so jump into Teespring, get some cool merch. If you want to talk dogs and stuff, do that in the discussion group. A lot of good conversations, pretty supportive area, no fuckery in that group, which is good. Mm. And if you want to get in contact with us, something personal, we are info at thecanineparadigm.com. Or if you want to book sessions with us, get in touch with us individually. You can do that for me. I got a lot of inquiries lately just through my website, operantcanine.com.au. Go to training. There's a tab there. You just book it in. And then I get the email saying that we're going to talk. We don't have to have the, what time zone are you in? All right. Well, that's six o'clock for me. It's all pre-done. It's all done. It displays in your time zone. You can book the time. Yeah. That's it. Goodbye. Bye.